I would like to acknowledge that this podcast is recorded on Jar Jar Wurrung country. We pay our respects to the traditional custodians of this land and acknowledge leaders and elders past, present and future. Thank you. Hello and welcome. You are listening to Soul Care Bendigo's podcast, Naked. I'm your host, Gail Wilson, and together we will go through a series of storytelling, conversations and strategies about leaning into life's lessons, the good, the bad and the downright painful, as we journey back to ourselves and back to our intuition. Through the lens of witness and reflection, we will work our way through a series of raw, stripped-back, relatable topics and personal experiences. There will be laughter, tears and the occasional swear word because, hey, life is too short to hold back. So come along with me on this journey and let's talk life. You can follow and subscribe to Soul Care Bendigo's Naked to get notifications for upcoming episodes as they land in your space. So lend me your ears and your heart as we go through this journey together. Hello and welcome back, my beautiful soulies. You are at episode three of Soul Care Bendigo's podcast, Naked. Today's episode is about my beautiful bipolar father. And might I offer a warning to you, please? This episode contains details of mental health demise, the challenges of living with someone with a mental illness, and details of the complexity of family. As always, I really want to be mindful when we broach sensitive topics. I have been given permission by my family to discuss this, and while it is private, we feel that if we can help one other family, navigate through these dark waters, and it's all for something. So my beautiful father was born in 1941, both with his mother and dad in County Ireland. Unfortunately, his father passed away when he was fairly young. His mother went on to have other children, some of them my dad knew, and some of them he didn't find out about until he was in his 50s. Ah, the complexity of family. It's never quite how Disney likes to portray it, is it? We've all got our own story and we've all got our own realisation that nothing is always as it seems. My dad got married when he was in Ireland and they had a daughter. Things were going okay and then they weren't. And when that family broke up, in that time, my dad decided to move to Australia. In that time, he met my mum and they got married and had three kids. My eldest brother in 1977, myself in 1982 and my younger sister in 1983. Each three of us children have very different experiences of our childhood. We all lived under the same roof, but it's been fascinating as I go back and talk to my siblings, their own mental awareness, their own detail of our childhood is so different. And before I had these conversations with my siblings and I became aware of their interpretations of the exact same house that I grew up in, it became really obvious to me that, <laughs> and while many people who know me personally will know, that I do live in a bit of a bubble. It's a gale bubble. It's pretty in there. It's optimistic. It's plentiful. I'm a glass half full kind of girl. And I'm also a little bit naive. And I'm also a really kind of unaware of stuff that's going on around me, unless it's like right in my face. I'm just a bit doula on those sorts of things. And so for me, my interpretation of our childhood while there was some couple of dramatic moments, is pretty happy. I remember us socialising and I remember mum and dad getting along most of the time. I remember there were some bits that were 
a little bit heavy and a little bit dark. And there was a couple of moments that I know my dad was never proud of in his parenting experience and journey. But in between all of that, I felt that things were pretty stable and pretty good for me. And I thought that was happening for everyone else. Turns out that wasn't the case at all. But it's that sort of oblivion that I could have lived in. And it was nice there. It was actually pretty sad when I heard all my other siblings' experiences of our childhood. And and I kind of went, oh, well, that sucks for you. That's not the picture I had at all in my mind. So here I was in my little bubble. And I got along with mum and dad pretty well. And then I hit my teenage years and I rebelled like everybody else. And I started doing some underage drinking and being a bit disrespectful and a bit of a cow. But I think I would say, in my personal opinion, I actually came through that pretty quick. And it's kind of when I came through that with a level of probably because I'd entered the working life that I started noticing things in my family had started to shift. Things were just different. My dad just didn't seem to cope with parenting as well. And I knew that in his late 60s and early 70s, we would have conversations that he would talk about the grief that he experienced when the kids stopped being entertained by him, like that real rejection he felt. When we all started dating and our partner started filling his shoes, he felt real rejection at that. And then he kind of got to a point where he was a bit disgruntled and a bit resentful. And it's that my kids should want to come and see me. My kids should want to spend time with me. But we were just a bit oblivious and living our own life and things just kind of moved on. But it doesn't really for a parent. They kind of miss that. Their purpose changes. And so I think on reflection, what I can look back with dad's mental health is in hindsight, oh, it's a wonderful tool. And it's such a shame it doesn't come to us earlier in on our situations. But in hindsight, when I look back at it, like dad had a couple of really great friends. They did create some boundaries. I now recognize with my dad. My dad was either really happy, really social, up for a laugh, top of the world, king of the castle, or really down, really angry, really isolated, not socializing, not doing things. And I remember he started to get a temper. He always had a bit of a short fuse, but he started getting like a darkness with him that I don't know if it's just timing of how mental illness starts, if it was a couple of things that had happened in his life that he hadn't really healed from. I know the characteristics of bipolar, but I don't often know what sets it off. And I suppose this is the hardest thing when my dad started to become mentally unwell and really erratic and also started showing other characteristics like, you know, blowing his money and not sharing his money with my mum and having a lot of credit cards. And some of them had his name spelt a bit differently. And I kind of was young and I didn't really understand. I just sort of say, God, what is this? What's your name spelled wrong? And he sort of snatched it out of my hand. And my mum and dad had a really, really tidy house. As I said in my earlier episode, we grew up in a miners' cottage in our central Victoria and the house was old, big, large bedrooms, one living space, a small kitchen. And at the back of the property, we did an extension. And initially that small extension was an extra living space and a small bedroom for me that had an ensuite to help with managing some of my medical stuff and my unusual body. As I moved out, dad took over that room and it was always locked. We weren't allowed in there. It was a big no-no. If there was something he'd taken in there that we needed, he was very secretive. It was unlocked and they'd go in, shut the door, lock it again, found what he wanted to, unlock it, come out. So it was just odd. Just some odd things started occurring. 
And he started having these really unusual opinions on things. Or you might have a phone call with him that you thought was a normal conversation, but something that you had said in that conversation, he was obsessed with and he would overthink it and he'd get rage and he'd get angry. So then we started copying this real abuse from him fairly regularly in his down days. And I remember he and I had this massive fight one time in our house. I can't remember what was over. I just remember the feeling of it, the anger, and that it, it was unjust and unwarranted, and it, he had exploded over something. And I probably was about 16 or 17 at this point, living at home, started my hairdressing apprenticeship, and he's blew up about something, and it was so over the top and unnecessary. And to get my frustration out, I went in the carport and I was sweeping, sweeping the leaves up, just like fucking furious. And my mum came out and she just sat on this seat and she just waited for me to say something because she, oh, you know, I know what it's like to be the person who has to try and fix everything within the family when things blow up. It's the common role of a mother. It's a shit role, might I add, but it is a common role that we are the peacekeepers. And so she came out and sat on this chair and I just, you know, I remember holding onto the broom and I was like shaking with anger. And I said to her, why the fuck would you marry someone like that? He is the biggest fucking prick. I was ropeable. And she just sat quietly on that chair and she just let me say everything I need to say. And I said, he's just changed. He's so angry. He's so grumpy. Or he doesn't talk to us for days. Like what the fuck is going on? And my mum just quietly looked at me and she was kind of shaking her head side to side. And she said, that's not the man I married. Simple words. That's not the man I married. Those six words changed a massive comprehension of me, of my family. That's not the man I married. And when I said, what do you mean by that? And she said, he has changed. Something's wrong. He comes back every now and again, that man I married, that jovial, larrikin, laugh. But it's such a light. It's such a bright light, but it's such a short light. And then it's like the fuse gets lit and over time this demise happens. And then we have these explosions and then this isolation and this kind of withdrawal of love or actually withdrawal of self. And we'd all kind of be walking around on eggshells. And then one day, you know, however much longer, it's like a finger would click and he'd be back. He'd be jovial, happy, and we're all kind of rocking in a corner at this abuse and this silence and this withheld love. And then he'd be back and you'd be like, expect us to forget the whole thing. Not a big deal. Happens in every family. And I remember when my mum said those simple words to me, when I gave her the space to chat it over, we started collating this data on what had changed in that time. So this was probably, I would say, about 1999. And I think he went to the doctor and it was very early when we started talking about depression and all sorts of things. And he was diagnosed with depression and he was put on a light antidepressant and things were okay again for a little while. It was pretty stable. And I moved out. I moved in with my partner. Dad was actively involved in my life still. He loved when I gave him a job. So if I was like, oh, Dad, I need to get my car service or I need new tires, he'd be like, yep, great, great. He just loved being needed, loved filling that masculine role. And he'd go and he'd research and come back with all this information. And that kind of really filled his day. He loved it. And he loved his animals. So he used to take them for walks. And so what happened is from there, little beknownst to us, he thought he was fixed and he took himself off his antidepressants and something darker than depression developed in that couple of years. 
He was difficult to be around. He was aggressive in how he used his power and the nasty things that he would say. And he was really fake. And what I mean by that is he started telling a lot of lies, a lot of lies to kind of make himself seem like something he wasn't. And I, again, because I live in my oblivious bubble and I'm really quite an honest, easygoing person, but I'm also a bit of a doula. So I remember once my parents had this casting agency and this guy rang. It was this big hedgehog show from some production company in Melbourne. My dad wasn't home and I was home and I answered the phone and he said, oh, hello, I'd like to talk to, and he said his name. And I was like, oh, sorry, he's not home right now. And he goes, oh, home? I thought I'd ring the office number. And I said, no, 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 this is our house. The office is in the house. And he goes, no, the office is in your beach house down at so-and-so in Port Melbourne. And I was like, no, in Bendigo, I'm his daughter and our office is at the back of the house. And the guy was just silent. And anyway, my dad got home a couple of hours later and I was so confused. And I'm like, oh, wait, I think I've done something. Oops, shit. And dad got home and I said, um may have done something I wasn't supposed to do. And, of course, he said, what did you break? What's going on? What's happening? And I said, um, Guy rang. And he was like, yeah. And I said, uh, and he asked to talk to you. And I said, you weren't home right now. And he said oh, he thought he'd rang the office number. And I saw my dad's face go white as it goes. And I said, oh, he said we had an office in Melbourne. And I said, no, we live in Bendigo and our office is at the back of the house. And I remember my dad, like, losing it he fucking lost it gail we're supposed to look professional we're supposed to do this and we're supposed to do that and part of his bipolar is he developed this obsession with this keeping up with the joneses and not telling his truth on how he actually lived like he said that he lived here and he always drove this particular car and he'd go on these shopping sprees even though he was broke and he just put his credit card to pay credit card and it was like we started seeing a pattern of behavior and at this point later, it's probably five or six years, and all of us have copped verbal abuse, emotional abuse, confusion on our relationships, and this up and down roller coaster of a shitstorm. And then later on, Dad went for more intensive psychological assessments, and they discovered that he had indeed developed bipolar disorder. And so it was like a split personality almost. The one thing that I think really affected our family back then through dad's mental illness is that there was never any service provided that educated the whole family unit on how the hell to live with someone with something this severe. So we tried to just navigate it together and we did as well as we possibly could. The hardest thing I suppose with someone who's got a mental illness as a witness and as someone who's a bystander is there is no law that they have to maintain their medication. It's just an honor system, really. And that's actually really frightening when you're a family member of someone who's got a severe mental illness because what would happen is dad would take his medication and everything would be great. He'd be just a normal dad, meet the cuppers, really loving grandfather, really loving father. We'd go back to laughing and joking and the guy he used to be when I was little and it was so fantastic. And unbeknownst to us, he'd decide in his own frame of mind that he was cured and he'd stop taking his medication. Now, what that would look like would be the next nine months of hell. So that would come up as starting to get short-tempered and then 
starting to not talk to us or starting to get very abusive phone calls, conversations that he would twist the way the storyline went. So the first month he'd be sort of okay. He'd just start doing the odd opinions. Then it would be the quick to anger. Then it would be uh, he was always broke because he just brought all this shit that he never needed. Then it would be asking to borrow money to pay his credit card. Then it would be the screaming at you like a random phone call that you had that his brain had twisted into this totally different narrative and then you'd get abused based on that lie his brain was telling him. And then from that you'd create some distance because you just think, oh, here we go again. And then from there, because I'd left the family home at this time, my mum would be walking on eggshells or she'd be ready to fight back. So, you know, doozies of shocking fights. And then, you know, understandably from my mum's point of view, she'd just lose all compassion. Like my mum is a very black and white woman. There's not much grey. Well, there wasn't back then anyway because she was in function. She was in such an active part of her life. She was working. She volunteered at our school. She did lots of things without sports. And so she was far more actively involved in our life almost like a single parent when dad was like this, to be totally honest with you, and then having like another child, but like a child that looks like a man but behaves like a toddler and an unhinged toddler at that. So when it would get to about the nine-month mark when he had totally hit rock bottom, so that would mean, and I mean this in a gentle way, but he'd go from enjoying his dogs and patting them to them always being under his feet and giving them a shove with his foot and swearing at them, which he didn't do. The real Joe didn't do that stuff. He loves those dogs and he treated them like his babies. So there was indications that let us know that mm, something's changed. That would be one. How he treated the animals would be a massive part of it. Asking for money to help pay for debt that he had spent and maxed out his credit cards, all seven of them. Him and mum not talking and then mum herself being quick to anger because she was living in a hellhole back at the house. And then I'd get the phone call from mum and she was basically at her wit's end. She's lost all patience. She's like, your father's not coming out of his room. And I'd be like, right. He's like, I don't know. He's delusional. He's yelling things. He's grumpy. I can't approach him on anything and he's not eating. And so by the time my mum had to make that call, she'd suffered a lot in that time. And for her to reach out to her daughter to come and solve the problem was really difficult. You've got to remember back then there was no internet or we didn't have internet. So researching mental health was really difficult. It was very early days before there was lots of pamphlets. Unless you went to a GP appointment, you weren't technically allowed to speak about my dad. So I tried to make GP appointments to get educated on my dad's condition. And they would offer me some information, but not a lot. And so when it was, let's say it was the sort of around 2010, so we'd been living with this for quite a while now, over a decade of this up and down, and me having to go in and help my dad. This is the reality of someone who's in a deep psychiatric problem. So mum would ring and say that dad is not coming out of his room. He's not talking to me. He's in there shouting. He's mad. I can hear him throwing things around and he's not eating. So I would get to the house and I would knock on the door and open it. Nine times out of ten, my dad would be either hiding under the doona or hiding in the corner of a room behind like a really small item that he honestly thought that you couldn't see him. It was very much like going to talk to a very scared child. So 
you've got to remember this is a grown man in his 50s at this point and late 50s and he'd be hiding behind like a lamp and he thought that he was invisible or that you couldn't see him and so when I'd walk in he'd have these bulging eyes of terror and I would talk to him like he was a child and I'd never ever referred to him as dad because in those phases he didn't see me as his daughter which is complicated I don't know why but so I would say hello Joe come on out of there that doesn't look very comfortable and so I'd have to gently coax him out now I will say he was never aggressive or violent towards me in these circumstances he was just terrified and so then he'd start rambling all these delusions and all this paranoia would just be kind of spewed at me. If I could explain it like this, it's like everything he's ever been guilty of. Say the credit cards, for example, or if he'd done something dodgy with tax or Centrelink or whatever he did, the paranoia would be based on that guilt. So Centrelink are after me. I just saw one of them. They poke their head in the curtain. They're looking for me. They're going to find me. They're going to know I've been lying. I didn't know what his lies were about. I was never privy to any of whatever he'd set up for himself or it would be just anything and everything. It was just the weirdest circumstances. So I'd walk in on that room and he'd be terrified. I'd talk to him as Joe, just talk to him kind of like he was a small child that was lost because that's what he was. He was lost in this dark, frightening, scary world that made no sense. And that's just nine short months after he'd stopped taking that last pill. Mum would always have something ready for him to eat. She never came in the room with me when I did that. She just stayed on the other side of the door. And I would just sit on the end of the bed and give him space and say, why don't you come out of there, Joe? It doesn't look very comfortable. That's when he was hiding behind items. If he was under the bed, I would sometimes say, you mind if I sit on your bed here, Joe? I just wanted to see how you are today. And we just talked very innocently. And he'd sort of look at me like he knew he could trust me, but he just still had this, whatever the voice was saying inside the head, this complication. And he'd say, good, thanks, like a grumpy little kid. You can laugh about it now because it did get better. And so my laugh is not mocking him or the illness. It is just me remembering how surreal and absurd that this situation got over and over and over again, whenever he decided he was cured and he got off his medication. And I'd say to him, you look really hungry. Do you know I've got some biscuits here that I think you would like? And he snaps the biscuit from my hand and eat it like he was starving because he was starving. He hadn't eaten anything. He was grumpy. He wouldn't come out for meals. And then get him a cup of tea and he'd drink a cup of tea. And by that stage, we had become familiar with the cat team. The cat team was a Bendigo psychiatric team that we could ring in duress. We never had to ring the police on my dad. We just had to ring the cat team and they would come with some security and talk him around. Or we could even ring the GP and get him in the next day. Because once we got him talking and we got him out of that room, there must have been some rational window still in there. And I don't know if that's timing, like mum just rang me at the right time. Or where the weather, it was always there. He'd say, close the curtains, close the curtains. We'd say, all that's out there is a tree. And so we'd help him be brave to look out the window to see no one was there. We'd, you know, the TV looked, works normal. The phone works normal. So we'd kind of bring him out. And once he'd had something to eat and a shower and had a bit of a chat, 
he would be okay. And then um, he'd be in the GP or we'd have some of his medications still there. He'd start it back up again. And before too long, he'd be back with normal cells. He didn't have any memories of those moments in that duress. And I'm thankful for that because I can cope with those memories, but I don't know if his heart would have coped with knowing exactly how bad he made our family suffer at times. And when I say he made that happen is because the choice not to take medication is purely the person of the patient. And he thought he was taking the medication because he was well. So as we got better at acknowledging and managing his mental health, we got better at it as a family. So one thing he and I did in a well phase, my mum ended up getting a job and going back to work. And I actually feel like that was a big trigger for him is that he wasn't working. He wasn't earning an income and he felt really emasculated. That was nothing to do with my mum. My mum was an amazing woman who went back to school after raising all of us children wonderfully. And she kicked ass and became a fantastic accountant and worked for some amazing companies. But my dad really didn't like it. And he really didn't like when she got friends who were single, who was telling her she was putting up with shit and she should leave. And so she started getting a bit of a backbone and fighting back which was good for her, but it was also obviously bad for their marriage. And many times they spoke about leaving one another and breaking up, but it was too bloody expensive and neither of them could agree on a price. So they stayed together. And then as I had children, I will say that they became the best grandparents together. Didn't matter what was going on in the scheme of the rest of their other existence in their marriage. When my kids were over there, they were fantastic. They came together. They were so loving. And my dad got to be young again. You know, that's the real part of that kind of silliness that he really grieved when we started rejecting that silliness. He really loved that he got back to that. And boy, did our children love him. They were none the wiser to all the other stuff that happened and did continue happening after Leo was born. So one thing that dad and I did make a plan for with his mental illness that I had done some research on by the time As I said, we're 2011 or so. I came up with a mad nap, which is a concept I'd seen somewhere. And it was when your person that you're caring for is really, really well. And you sit down and you make a cognitive list of all the things that brings them joy and things that you saw when they started becoming unwell. And it kind of becomes a checklist. And the checklist, obviously, as it goes further down, gets darker and darker and darker. And it's so that before things get too bad, we could have a conversation. So it might say things like, hasn't taken the dog for a walk, hasn't showered in a few days, quick to anger and everything's annoying him, grumpy, hasn't made any contact with his friends, starts hearing things or seeing things, starts getting really annoyed at conversations that he and I share. So the things that we knew that in a rational, medicated, functioning father, these are the things that he consistently was. And so when he'd start to go backwards again, I could get the list out and say, hey, I think we have a little bit of a problem. It's not you, but I think that darkness is trying to sneak up on you again. So when I used to talk like that, as in it being an external thing to him and it wasn't his fault and it was this external thing that just happened to affect him, it was a much easier conversation to have. So I'd say, I've noticed that you haven't walked the dogs for a while and you seem to be getting really angry at the little things with me and it's been a while since you shaved and your pants looking a bit loose. And so that's when I could say, how about we just book an appointment with your GP because we know that I don't want you to go back to where you were 
You don't want to go back to where you were. And so we can just get onto it now. And of course, that's when he might say, oh, no, I think I'll come good. I think I'll come good like the lie someone can tell. And as I had these fantastic conversations with my dad that were very vulnerable and honest, he would explain to me that the medication is so suppressing. So while he never did, had the lows and the bottom outs and the severe depression and the spending, and he also couldn't really see the joy in life anymore. And so he felt like he lived this plateau line of not up down, but not up either. So things went funny. He shows that normally gave had him crack up laughing. He didn't see the humor. It just muted life. When he went for a walk in the bush, he felt like he couldn't smell the things he loved. He couldn't see the colors. And so when he felt well enough and he was sick of that sensation, this boring, dull life, he said, I'd rather have the lows just to get some high. But he never had that conversation with us. We just had to cop it once we realized that, okay, he's gone off his medication again. And you try to have a conversation with him and you try to bring him back around. But, of course, I couldn't shove the pills in his mouth. I can't make him take them. He has to want to take them. And so the MAD map was really good because it was about maintaining our relationship and maintaining his connection to the kids. And they were great, let's say, for lack of a better word, bargaining tools to make sure that he stayed on his medication. You might have noticed that I've been talking about my dad as a past tense. And that is because my dad did pass away in terrible circumstances. It was so unnecessary during one of the most stressful times of his life while he was unsupported with medication. That's another episode for another day because these memories are difficult to go back to. But if one person also has to either live with a mental illness or live with someone who suffers from a mental illness, I just want you to know that I see you. I see your bravery. I see the challenge. I feel your pain and heartache. And it would be lovely if it all just went back to the way it used to be. But it can't. And these conditions are incurable. It's so heartbreaking. And so we commit to this roller coaster, or we don't. But our family committed. My mum stayed. My husband used to get so angry at me because my dad would treat me like utter shit. And he'd see the tears. He'd see the backlash of that. What could only be described as abuse. But I knew my dad was still in there. And I didn't want to walk away. Because the good moments were really good. And he never signed on for this. This was never something that he said, hey... I'm going to go out and buy bipolar and I'm going to put it on my pocket and I'm going to wear it like a cloak. It snuck up on him. It snuck up on our family. And it took us to hell and back. And that wasn't even me experiencing what he experienced. I think that through that lens of compassion, I could tough it out because it could have been worse. It could have been me going through it. So my reflection, what's my little takeaway from all of this? It has to be compassion for me. We create boundaries, and I'll tell you this. I did have a breakdown. Um, I had a terrible breakdown one day at work, and my beautiful boss sent me to a psychologist, and the psychologist said, this is the funny thing about counselling and psychology. Often we're treating the people who are the victims of bad behaviour. And he was really good. He went through, right, these are the characteristics of a bipolar person. Anything outside of this, he's just an asshole. Wow. So liberating to know, okay, this is a mental disease and I can have compassion for this and I can create boundaries. Or you're actually just being a prick and I'm ready to fight. This is go town. And so that changed the dynamics of our relationship too because it felt that I could 
you know, put the brakes on a little bit and not feel guilt or not feel shame of stepping back or stepping away, that I could actually have the right to crack the shit with someone who was treating me badly and that was active choice of their behavior, not because of their mental illness. So the takeaway is education. Education and compassion for what someone's going through, really understanding the illness, really having a talk. When your friend, your partner, your your husband, your dad, your mum, your brother, your sister, when they're really well, when they're back on their meds and they're doing really well, take the time to hear it out. Take the time to listen. Take the time to experience the emotions, the fear, the absolute fear that they go through and sit in that space with them and talk really candidly. Don't brush it under the carpet. Everyone suffers when you do that. Have it out in the open. Make it a conversation in the house. Go and seek education from whatever services are around on how a family can co-live with someone who has a severe mental illness. What the signs are for when you might need to ring your GP. How far to let things get before you step in and intervene or get intervention for them. Even if the person's saying that you're betraying them and you're awful and you've called the cops on me and you've done these and you've done that. It's not them talking. That's the disease talking. Learn the difference between the two. And I just offer you my heart because it is tough. It is really tough. But these little things like compassion, education, vulnerable, candid conversation can make it a little bit easier. And let's just hope that the more we all talk, the more we all bring out this darkness, find light on it. The light is compassion. The light is education. The light is vulnerability. Open up that darkness and crack it open. I love you and I'm here for you. Thank you for listening today. These are hot topics. They're big topics. But they're in more households than we realise. And so for that I say, I wish you all love and light and a way back from the dark. And that's all for today, folks. As always, thank you for letting me your ears and your hearts. I feel so grateful and blessed to be able to share these stories with you and bring us together as a community. This is Gail Wilson, and this is Soul Care Bendigo's podcast, Naked. Don't forget to follow and subscribe so that you get notifications on the next episode as it lands. Take care and just be kind to yourself.